We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Away we go, episode 45 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Thursday, April 22nd, 2021, a day on which if you Google up your NBA standings, you see the Wizards. I said you see the Wizards. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, that team, our team, as being 10th in the Eastern Conference, as being in position to be a participant in the first ever Eastern Conference play-in tournament for the NBA playoffs. The Wizards on Wednesday night, a 118-114 win over the Golden State Warriors at Capital One Arena, where we had fans, 2,000-plus first game back for fans at Cap One since the COVID-19 pandemic began. Thank you, Emperor Bowser. The win was not pretty. The game, at times, came off like a joke, but the Wizards won. 
They are flying. What's rising faster, gas prices or our wizards? The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, thank you, Stephen A. Smith. Hello and welcome both the Wizards and Nationals winning on Wednesday. Nats with a one nothing win over the St. Louis Cardinals at Nationals Park earlier on Wednesday. Max Scherzer outstanding. Nice to have some wins to discuss on this installment of the Al Galdi podcast. Also to be discussed, our Washington football team and a fascinating what if that has come up again. It is a what if that sounds nuts and for the most part is nuts, but it now has come up multiple times. And the what if is the following. Bill Belichick to the Washington football team in the 2018 offseason. We're on to Cincinnati. No, Bill, not on to Cincinnati, on to Washington. As things soured between Bill Belichick and Tom Brady and Robert Kraft, with Kraft over Jimmy Garoppolo being traded away, old Bill, Uncle Bill, flirted with coming to Washington. We're on to Cincinnati. No, Bill, not on to Cincinnati, on to Washington. Not recently. Again, this happened in the 2018 offseason after the 2017 season. The what-ifs are endless with this thing. I'll engage in the what-if talk in just a bit. Expect some scheduled fun with this one. Also, I have some Washington football team draft talk coming up in minutes off something that came out on Wednesday regarding Justin Fields. Special guest on the show, the longtime television voice of the Capitals, Joe Beninati of NBC Sports Washington. Just one point separates the top three teams in the East Division. Caps and New York Islanders are tied atop the division at 62 points. The Pittsburgh Penguins are in third place at 61 points. A huge stretch of games for the Caps begins on Thursday night. Three consecutive games against the Islanders, followed by two consecutive games against the Penguins, and I'll talk some Orioles as well. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Speaking of talking Orioles, uh, email from our friend Dr. CCB. She writes, from time to time, the kids will ask, Ma, what did Galdi talk about today? Why does he talk about the Orioles all the time? So I, as in Dr. CCB, had to run down the theme I've noticed with your new podcast. You'll start with the skins, then whiz, move to the caps, discuss the Nats, and end with the O's. I said Galdi vowed to talk about all DMV sports, and that's what he does. Yes, Dr. CCB, that is exactly what I do. Now, the order does fluctuate somewhat, but yes, generally speaking, we do begin with the skins, the Washington football team. And we do end with the Orioles because, you know, the Orioles are not a D.C. team, but there remains a lot of D.C. area interest in the O's. And I've never liked nor understood this thing of, you can't talk about the Orioles. You're a D.C. show. You're in the D.C. market. Don't talk about the Orioles. Like, no, actually, there are still a lot of people in this area who follow the O's. The Nationals are Washington, D.C.'s team. But when it comes to the area, the DMV area, there remain many Orioles fans. So it's okay to talk about both. You're not committing some mortal sin in doing that. But yeah, the the doctor has more or less figured out the formula. Now, I'd say lately I've been doing more Capitals, then Nationals, then Wizards. That's kind of been the order lately. But you know what? As as things change, as some teams do better than others, as some teams play bigger games than others, the order will reflect that. Okay, so it is an accomplishment to get higher placements in the pecking order on the Al Galdi podcast. For instance, in this installment, I'm going to talk some Washington football team, and then I'm going to actually talk Wizards. The Wizards today are getting top... 
We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Billing above the likes of the Nationals and the Capitals because of the Wizards winning lately and the Wizards coming through with that win on Wednesday night. You see, you got to earn it on this podcast. We don't just give anything. I've said how I want an open, honest, good faith competition at quarterback for Washington this summer. Ryan Fitzpatrick versus Taylor Heineke versus Kyle Allen or whoever else may be involved in the mix. That's what we're about here on this show. Open and honest competition. You got to earn it. But when you earn it, you are properly rewarded. All right, guys, look, no one's perfect. Even the best baseball players strike out with the bases loaded. The best golfers sometimes three-putt with the tournament on the line. So if you feel like you come up short in the bedroom sometimes, it's perfectly okay. But if it's bothering you, there are options. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi and complete an online visit. Take care of your ED without leaving home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now to get $15 off your first month. Look, there's a straightforward way to take care of your ED. GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi. Get started now to save $15 on your first month of treatment. All right, well, one week from today is the first round of the 2021 NFL Draft. So if you are sick of all the pre-draft hype, all you need to know is that you're a week away from it all being over. Now, I know how this goes. Those of you who are tired of the buildup for the draft, you're going to be wanting for the buildup of the draft once the draft is over. That's just how these things play out, right? It's like, oh, I'm so sick of hearing about this, and I'm so sick about talking about that. And then the thing happens is like, oh, geez, I wish we still had this to talk about. So I'm enjoying this. While we're doing this here, I am enjoying this. But yeah, man, I get it. Like, there is a lot of this, and the draft will be here soon enough. Now, very good conversation. Uh, I certainly enjoyed it very much so on our previous installment of this podcast. Ian Wharton, NFL writer, NFL draft analyst for Complex Sports. If you missed that, I would highly encourage you to check that out. That was in uh, episode 44 of the Al Galdi podcast. And Ian Wharton, like a lot of people, really likes Justin Fields, the Ohio State quarterback. If you caught my chat with another NFL draft analyst, Anthony Treesh, senior college analyst for Pro Football Focus. That was in episode 37. He too is a big fan of Justin Fields. I like Justin Fields. I think there is a lot to like 
about Justin Fields, but I think there are questions too, just like there are with all of these quarterbacks in the draft, really save for Trevor Lawrence. But I bring up Fields because he is a very polarizing figure in this draft. People seem to either love him as a prospect or not like him all that much as a prospect. A lot of variance with Justin Fields. If you've been tracking the mock drafts, he has been all over the place in the first round. Like some people say he should be the second quarterback taken or the third quarterback taken. Some people have him falling to nine or 12 or 14, that kind of a thing. He is one of those quarterbacks you look at and you think about and you say, well, if he does fall, is that someone who Ron Rivera and the Washington football team will pounce on? You know, we've talked about the exorbitant cost of Washington having to go from 19 to say four or even like 19 to six. But what if you don't have to do that? What if the guy you like, Fields or Trey Lance, drops to 12 or 13 or 14, that kind of a thing? That's a more realistic trade-up. Well, with all this as a backdrop, emerging on Wednesday from NFL insiders Ian Rappaport and Tom Pelissero of NFL.com slash NFL Network was that Fields, during this pre-draft process, which, yes, has been going on for a very long time, has confirmed to NFL teams that he is managing epilepsy. Yeah, uh, I read that. I'm guessing like a lot of you read that. And I was like, whoa, where the heck did that come from? Uh, epilepsy is many of you listening though, right? Neurological disorder can cause seizures. Uh, Fields epilepsy has not affected his play. And doctors do believe that Fields will outgrow his epilepsy as other members of his family have. So this is a thing that runs in his family, but it is not a thing that has plagued people in Fields' family throughout those people's lives. It's something you can outgrow. Also per Rappaport was that Fields has been taking medication, has not had any recent issues, and that it is possible that he's actually already outgrown the illness. So, you know, it's the kind of thing that like grabs your attention, like Fields, epilepsy, what, how, where, but it doesn't seem to be that big of a deal in terms of his playing career. I'm sure it's a big deal to him, okay, and it's something you obviously need to monitor, but it's something that popped up on Wednesday and something that certainly is of note. Ohio State's head coach Ryan Day on Wednesday afternoon tweeted the following, quote, Justin's health, toughness, and work ethic have never been an issue, and I am incredibly proud of his professionalism and the character he displays on and off the field. The fact that he never missed a game at Ohio State speaks volumes about how he takes care of himself, end quote. I don't think for a second Justin Fields having epilepsy should in any way impact his draft stock. And actually, this Fields item that came up on Wednesday reminded me of some things that we've dealt with with guys who the Washington football team has drafted in recent years. Medical concerns for players in drafts come up all of the time. And what's so funny to look back on is how many times those concerns end up not meeting much, you know, and end up practically being forgotten, okay? Consider two recent first-round picks by Washington, Jonathan Allen. Remember, Jonathan Allen going into that 2017 NFL draft was talked about as like a top five pick. He fell all the way to 17 to Washington on the night of the first round of the 2017 draft. Jonathan Allen is one of the ultimate examples of how you should never be totally certain that a guy is going to go in a certain range of picks because you just never know. We've seen plenty of people drop in first rounds over the years. That is true. But man, I didn't know that, I don't know of anyone who had Jonathan Allen plummeting in that first round the way that he ended up plummeting. And Washington astutely gobbled up Allen at number 17 in 2017. Well, one of the reasons that Jonathan Allen fell to Washington at 17 in 17 was concern about him having arthritic shoulders. Remember? 
That was like a thing. Jonathan Allen has these arthritic shoulders, and anyone who takes him is going to have to deal with Jonathan Allen and his arthritic shoulders. Now, that was not the only reason he fell. He did not have a great combine, so that was a factor. But the arthritic shoulders were a thing. Well, here we are, four seasons into Jonathan Allen's NFL career, and you tell me, have the arthritic shoulders at any point come up as an issue? Now, maybe behind the scenes, the arthritic shoulders have been a thing, but I've never heard that. I've never seen that reported. Jonathan Allen's arthritic shoulders, as best as we can tell, have not come up once over his four NFL seasons. What about Montez Sweat? So Washington, of course, trades back into the first round in 2019 to take Montez Sweat. And that, of course, is a story in and of itself. Washington trades its 2019 and 2020 second round picks to the Indianapolis Colts to get back into the first round in that 2019 draft to take Montez Sweat at number 26. This was done, and this has been confirmed, to placate Washington's football people as they were furious over Dan Snyder having dictated the selection of Dwayne Haskins with that number 15 overall pick. I mean, how screwed up is that, that you've got warring factions within your draft room, and in order to placate one faction, you do something like trade back into the first round to take a player just to make those who are mad not so mad, okay, even though I'm sure they were still mad. I mean, I'm glad Washington did that. I endorse Washington trading back into the first round during the night of the first round of the 2019 draft to take Montez Sweat. But like the reason behind it is so screwed up, okay? I mean, that is so messed up that you have to make a trade to placate your football people. Your football people should be running your draft. I mean, what are we doing here? Anyway, Washington makes this trade back in the first round to take Montez Sweat, who was available at number 26. And remember one of the things that was out there about Montez Sweat going into that 2019 draft, a pre-existing heart condition. It was a heart condition that came to light at the Combine in Indianapolis in February 2019. Per Ian Rappaport, tests taken at the Combine revealed that Sweat might have had something called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which results in thickening of the heart walls as doctors in Indy measured nearly two centimeters of thickness. Well, here we are, two seasons into Montez Sweat's NFL career. Perhaps things have happened behind the scenes that we have no idea about. Perhaps things are happening internally with Montez that are going to come back to haunt him. But as best as we can tell, Montez Sweat's pre-existing heart condition has not been a thing. And it certainly doesn't seem to have affected his play because while he maybe had a so-so rookie season, and I think a lot of that had to do with the way he was used and the talent and the culture around him, Montez Sweat busted out big time in the 2020 regular season. He finished with nine sacks, number one on the team. Montez Sweat was Washington's leading sack man last regular season. 14 tackles for loss, number one on Washington, six pass defenses, third on the team, two forced fumbles, third on the team, and Montez registered an overall grade for pro football focus of 79.7, number 10 among all qualified edge rushers in the NFL. So the Fields epilepsy thing is a thing. You certainly want to be mindful of it if you're drafting him or if you are trading up to take him. You know, if you're giving up a bunch of first round picks and other assets to get Justin Fields, like, heck yeah, you want to be mindful of this epilepsy situation and what exactly the kid is dealing with. But it doesn't seem to be that big of a deal from a football perspective. And again, in recent Washington football team history, there are very clear examples of, hey, this guy has that. Well, yeah, maybe he does but it's really not as big of a deal as some people maybe think. Jonathan Allen and Montez Sweat, what has happened with those two guys, should be remembered as stuff comes up about people and their medicals going into this 2021 NFL draft. One other thing about Justin Fields, and I came across this 
on Wednesday. And, you know, it has been confusing with Fields, right? We've had the whole thing about him throwing or not throwing to primary targets. It's very confusing. But Todd McShay, the ESPN NFL draft analyst in an ESPN Sports Center special back on April 1st said that he had been told by an NFL team that had studied Fields that just seven of his 225 pass attempts in the 2020 season were to a target other than the number one pass catcher on the play. And that's obviously disturbing, right? And that's the kind of thing, I mean, McShay says it on national television. It gets repeated and mentioned over and over and over again. I know when I saw that, I was like, wow, that is a pretty juicy nugget. And that's a big time indictment of Justin Fields, a big time knock on Justin Fields. But since then, there's been a whole lot of pushback on that. And Pro Football Focus has kind of led the way on this. Fields per PFF had the number one grade on non-first read throws over the 2019 and 2020 seasons. Minimum 60 pass attempts at 90.6. So those two things do not seem to be in concert with each other, as uh, Marty Schottenheimer might say. But here was this from PFF, and this was put out the other day on Twitter. So it turns out that when you're looking at the top quarterbacks going into this draft, right? Trevor Lawrence, Mac Jones, Justin Fields, Trey Lance, etc. Guess which one out of the bunch threw the most screen passes in college football last season? The answer isn't Justin Fields. The answer is Trevor Lawrence, who per PFF in 2020 threw an FBS high 87 screen passes. Now, that doesn't mean that you're a terrible quarterback, okay? Trevor Lawrence, to me, is the number one quarterback in this draft. And if he was available via trade, like if anyone was able to trade up to that number one spot, I would give up just about anything to get him. But that is kind of interesting, right? Wow, he did throw a lot of screen passes more than any other quarterback last season. In second place is Mac Jones, 85 screen passes in the 2020 season. Guess where Justin Fields rates, again, per PFF? 88th. Justin Fields threw the 88th most screen passes in college football last season at 20. Trevor Lawrence, number one, 87. Mac Jones, number two, 85. Justin Fields, number 88 at 20. Now, that's not the same thing as throwing or not throwing a bunch to a number one pass catcher or a primary target on a given play because your primary targets can be all over the place. Your number one pass catchers can be all over the place. But that is notable, right? Like the idea of Justin Fields having not thrown often to non-primary targets is, well, he's throwing a bunch of easy passes. He's throwing to a bunch of wide open guys. Well, this nugget on screen passes suggests if that was true, and maybe the McShay nugget is true. Again, it's still very confusing. And so much of this is interpretation. I'll grant you that. But there is a right and a wrong. Like that McShay nugget that he put out there, that's either right that Justin Fields had just seven of his 225 pass attempts last season to a target other than the number one pass catcher on the play, or that is wrong. Okay, there is no middle ground on something like that. But with this thing about the screen passes, I was like, well, you know, this isn't someone you just say, well, this guy was a dinker and a dunker, you know, and that was one of the knocks, okay, to go back to the last Ohio State quarterback who got drafted, Dwayne Haskins. Dwayne Haskins had some very good stats over his lone season as Buckeye starting quarterback in 2018. But one of the knocks on him was he did throw a good number of shorter passes. Justin Fields, again, last season for PFF, 88th among FBS quarterbacks in most screen passes with just 20 on the season. Something to think about. All right, so it is something so out there, so outrageous, so ridiculous, so absurd that you almost feel dumb for even bringing it up. But not only am I about to bring this up 
we're about to talk about it because this is not the first time that this has come up. Bill Belichick to Washington. Yes, you heard that right. The GOAT, the greatest head coach in NFL history, maybe in sports history, coming to the Washington football team. Not now, the time for this has passed, but a few years ago, specifically after the 2017 season. The latest instance of this coming up comes to us from ESPN writer Seth Wickersham, who was on something called the Harrison Vapnik podcast. You know, what kind of person names a podcast after his own name? But anyway, the the Harrison Vapnik podcast, uh, an installment of which dropped on April 19th, so just a few days ago here. And Seth Wickersham on this podcast said that Bill Belichick had talked to Washington after the 2017 season. Here is what Seth had to say. At the time, I think that there was a sense that, you know, Brady wasn't going anywhere. And, you know, had Bill left the impression that he might be open to a move. And, you know, there were some reports that came out at the time that the Giants were looking at him. I think he talked to the Redskins and the, uh, the you know, the Washington football team and the Dolphins um, about sort of their openings. And, you know, it was unclear whether he was interested or not, but he was still talking to them and, Subsequent reporting has only sort of shown how, you know, in that offseason, you know, Brady skipped the offseason program for the first time in his career and how he had just kind of had enough. All right. So that was ESPN writer Seth Wickersham. And the reason Seth Wickersham is relevant to all this is that a story written by Seth Wickersham that was published on ESPN.com in January 2018 was a big deal when it came to the Bill Belichick, Tom Brady, Robert Kraft saga. The headline of the piece was, For Kraft, Brady, and Belichick, Is This the Beginning of the End? And a big part of the piece was Belichick having not wanted to trade away quarterback Jimmy Garoppolo. What we're talking about here is Belichick having had at least inquired about what was going on with Washington in the 2018 offseason. And the timeline here makes sense because it was in October 2017 that New England traded quarterback Jimmy Garoppolo to the San Francisco 49ers for a 2018 second round pick. And one of the things highlighted by Seth Wickersham in this ESPN.com piece that came out in January 2018 was the extent to which Belichick never wanted to trade Garoppolo. Quote, Belichick didn't want to trade Garoppolo. Two weeks before the trading deadline, Belichick met with Kraft to discuss the quarterback situation. According to staffers, the meeting ran long, lasting half the day and pushing back Belichick's other meetings. The office was buzzing. The meeting ended with a clear mandate to Belichick, trade Garoppolo because he would not be in the team's long-term plans and then once again, find the best quarterback in the draft and develop him. Belichick was furious and demoralized, according to friends. But in the end, he did what he asks of his players and coaches he did his job, end quote. Now, what Seth Wickersham said on this podcast the other day is not the first time that Bill Belichick, having talked to, inquired with Washington, has come up. This guy, Gary Tangway of WEEI in Boston. WEEI is one of the big sports radio stations up in Boston. Tangway, on January 16th, 2020, said that Bill Belichick inquired about the head coaching jobs for Washington and the New York Jets, quote, after Jimmy G was traded, end quote. So this is now a second time that someone has said this, that the Patriots trading away of Garoppolo so infuriated Belichick, or at least was a big part of Belichick kind of being done with everything, that Belichick at least looked into leaving the Patriots 
after that 2017 season. And it wasn't just Belichick eyeing Washington. You know, the Jets came up, at least according to Tangway. You heard Seth Wickersham mention another team or two as well. But the point here is Washington. Now, most of you listening probably recognize what's so funny about all of this. It was in that 2017 season, after which Belichick was looking at other potential places to go to, that the Patriots had advanced to another Super Bowl. The Patriots won the AFC Championship for the 2017 season, though they did lose to the Philadelphia Eagles 41-33 in Super Bowl 52. And the following year, the 2018 season, what happened? The Patriots won another Super Bowl. That was the season in which New England defeated the Sean McVay coached Los Angeles Rams 13-3 in Super Bowl 53. So it's not like the Pats dynasty was over during or after that 2017 season. And in hindsight, I mean, if you're Belichick, you got to look at this and say, thank God I stayed in New England because I got myself another ring. I mean, as, as toxic as the Belichick-Brady relationship maybe became, the two still won another Super Bowl after all this stuff happened. Just to kind of put into perspective how great of a dynasty that Patriots dynasty was and maybe still is. I mean, is it technically over? Obviously, the Brady portion of it is. New England did go 7-9 and nine this past year. But if the Pats in 2021 go, you know, what, 11-6, and 12-5, you know, with a 17-game season, like, it's back on in terms of that New England dynasty continuing. I think you all recognize what the deal is with this. Like, Belichick coming to Washington was never going to happen for a number of reasons, okay? So the point of me bringing all this up isn't to say, my God, this was so close to happening. Like, no, the notion that Belichick was seriously considering coming to Washington after that 2017 season was so far-fetched, okay? Bill almost certainly had whatever communications that he had with Washington out of spite of what was going on with the Patriots and or for leverage purposes. You know, Washington at the time, coming out of that 2017 season, a 7-9 and injury-ravaged season, major questions at quarterback. 2017 was the final season for Kirk Cousins with the team. But you know what? Maybe that was a part of the intrigue for Bill. Like, hey, Washington, D.C., a chance to kind of start anew. I can dictate who the next quarterback of the team is. It's a huge challenge trying to get this franchise back to where it once was but hasn't been in a very long time, right? Remember, Bill Belichick was a big part of the 1980s NFC East working as Bill Parcells' defensive coordinator for the New York Giants. And there is that thing of Bill Belichick having grown up in this area or in this pseudo area. Bill Belichick was raised in Annapolis, Maryland. His father, Steve Belichick, was an assistant football coach for Navy for three plus decades, 1956 to 1989. Bill Belichick graduated from Annapolis High School in 1970. But no doubt, like, I don't think anyone can look at this objectively and say to him or herself, oh, this almost happened, or this was on the doorstep of happening. Like, no, this wasn't close to happening. And Bill, I think, almost certainly was using Washington just to get back at Robert Kraft and Tom Brady regarding whatever was happening behind the scenes with the Patriots at the time. But still, the fact that this was never likely should not stop us from letting our imaginations run wild on this installment of the Al Galdi podcast. Because the what-ifs for Bill Belichick with Washington, had Belichick come to Washington after the 2017 season, are endless, okay? I want you just to consider the following questions. First of all, the Bruce factor. It means you're close. Yes, Brucey, how you doing? What would have happened with Bruce Allen? Would Bill coming to Washington after the 2017 season have resulted in Dan Snyder firing Bruce Allen two years prior to Dan actually firing Bruce? Would Dan have actually said to Bill, 
uh, yeah, Bill, we're interested, but you're going to have to get along with Brucey here, okay? You're going to have to, you're going to have to work under Brucifer. It means you're close. Can you imagine that? Danny hiring Bill, but insisting that Bill work under Bruce. That would be an all-timer, okay? That would blow out of the water anything else that Dan has ever done as an owner in terms of his mistakes. But yeah, think about that. Would Bruce have just been whacked two years sooner? Or would Danny have actually insisted, nah, Brucey, you and Bill, you're going to be quite the dynamic tag team together here with my Washington NFL franchise. What about the Kirk factor? I'm a little bit more process oriented. Yes, Kirky, thank you. You know, I mentioned this. 2017 was Kirk's final season with Washington. Would Bill coming to Washington after the 2017 season have resulted in Washington doing more to keep Kirk Cousins? You know, it was considered a fait accompli that Kirk was gone after the 2017 season, long before the 2017 season ended. Would Bill coming here have changed that? Washington was not interested in throwing more money at Kirk in terms of upping the offer. Kirk, very clearly, as time went on, was not interested in re-signing with the team. What if all of a sudden Danny's got Bill Belichick coming here? Especially if Danny's got Bill Belichick coming here with Brucey out of here. Does that change everything when it comes to the Kirk cha-cha-cha? Yes, the Kirk cha-cha-cha could have had an entirely different ending had Belichick been landed by Washington after the 2017 season. If Bill coming to Washington after the 2017 season did not result in Kirk Cousins re-signing with the team, what would Bill's plan have been at quarterback? You know, Kirk is gone. So now what? Would Bill have done what Bruce did and trade for Alex Smith? Would Bill have taken a quarterback in the first round of the 2018 NFL draft? Remember, one of the ultimate reveals by Jay Gruden during his tenure as Washington head coach came in that 2018 offseason when Jay revealed that the trade for Alex was made before Jay and or the entire front office had had the chance to evaluate the quarterbacks in the 2018 NFL draft. I remember when Jay said that, I was apoplectic over that. I did a whole thing on the radio on that. How do you make a trade for a veteran quarterback without your front office, without your head coach, who used to be a quarterback and is an offensive-minded head coach, having evaluated the quarterbacks in the upcoming draft? You could have kept Kendall Fuller, you could have kept the third-round pick, and you could have just drafted a quarterback. And sure enough, what happened, right? Washington very clearly could have drafted Lamar Jackson. Lamar Jackson got taken by the Baltimore Ravens with the number 32 overall pick in that 2018 NFL draft. Now, Washington got Deron Payne at number 13 overall in that 2018 draft, and Payne has been a very good player for Washington. But you tell me, what would you rather have happened? Washington have taken Deron Payne at number 13 overall or taken Lamar Jackson at number 13 overall? What do you think Belichick would have done? If Belichick is here, does he have Washington take Lamar, maybe trade down and take Lamar, and you are set at quarterback for at least the next few years, maybe much longer? And that brings me to this hypothetical question. How different had Bill Belichick come here after that 2017 season? Would the next three seasons for Washington have been at quarterback? 2018 through 2020, Washington using eight different starting quarterbacks over those three seasons, regular season and postseason, right? It has been a revolving door at the quarterback position. Alex Smith, Colt McCoy, Mark Sanchez, Josh Johnson, Case Keenum, Dwayne Haskins, Kyle Allen, and Taylor Heineke. Eight different starting quarterbacks for our team over the last three seasons. Do we still get the revolving door if Belichick comes here after the 2017 season, or is everything different at the quarterback position if Uncle Bill comes here during that 2018 offseason? What would Bill coming to Washington after the 2017 season have meant defensively? for Washington. Washington's defense was terrible 
in 2018 and 2019. To what extent would that have been different? Would Josh Norman have thrived under Bill? Would Montez Sweat even be on Washington? Because if Bill comes to the team, you almost certainly don't take Dwayne Haskins at number 15 in the 2019 draft. And the reason you took Montez Sweat was because you traded back into the first round of that draft to placate the football people. You wouldn't have had to placate the football people because no way would Belichick have allowed Danny to do what he ended up doing. So is Montez Sweat even on Washington? Maybe Bill drafts Montez, but then again, maybe not. Would Chase Young even be on Washington had Bill come to the team? Is Washington bad enough in 2019 to get the number two overall pick in 2020 to get Chase Young if Bill Belichick is here. What about the Trent Williams saga? Think about that. Would Trent have had the chops to hold out for more money as he did if Bill Belichick was in charge? Think about that. (laughs) Is that a battle that Trent actually would have picked? Taking on Belichick. It's one thing to battle Brucifer. What about battling Belichick? How about Trent's then agent, Vincent Taylor? How about that guy? Do you think that guy, can you imagine the extent to which he would have been demolished by Bill Belichick in a Trent Williams holdout? And had Trent still conducted his holdout, how quickly, okay, think about this, how quickly would Bill have traded Trent as opposed to what Bruce did not trading Trent. It means you're close. Yes, thank you, Brucifer. There's no way Bill Belichick would have played Trent Williams' reindeer games. That thing would have been cut off in a second by Bill Belichick. Either the holdout ending or Belichick shipping Trent off and getting back a first-round pick, maybe even more. What about the money? What about how much Danny would have had to pay Belichick to come here? It is not known how much the Patriots pay Bill Belichick, okay? I mean, obviously, internally, it's known But externally, there are no concrete reports about what Bill Belichick makes. Pro Football Talk this past January 4th did tweet that Bill is believed to be making more than $20 million per year as, quote, teams funnel extra compensation to these guys through related companies, end quote. If Bill Belichick truly becomes available in that 2018 offseason, what would Dan have had to pay Bill? Okay, because you're obviously bringing Bill here to not just be your head coach, but to run your football operations. You talk about a coach-centric approach, that would have been a coach-centric approach, Danny hiring Bill, because Bill ain't coming here for any other situation. So what do you have to pay Bill? $25 million per year? $30 million per year? $40 million per year? There is no salary cap on coaches. I mean, what price is too much? How much is too high for Bill? Belichick, does that number even exist? Like, you can't put a number on the value of this guy if he does for you what he's done for New England. So I think that's really interesting to think about. Like, how high would the money have had to go to get Bill Belichick to want to come here to try to clean up the mess with our Washington football team? And then a final question, a final hypothetical as we let our imaginations run wild on this Bill Belichick to Washington thing that was out there on Wednesday is the following. Would Bill have done well with Washington? Or would Bill have ultimately been doomed by the situation that is doomed so many before him? And that is the Danny. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes, Danny. You know, this really would have been the ultimate battle of competence versus incompetence, of greatness versus suck, of excellence versus toxicity. You know, you talk about the irresistible force versus the immovable object. That's what this would have been. Belichick versus Danny, the all-time great head coach versus maybe the all-time worst sports owner. Which one would have won out? Which force would have ultimately been more powerful? Belichick's 
or Danny's. That would have been an all-time matchup. And honestly, I'm not sure which one would have prevailed. So yeah, on this Thursday, a week before the 2021 NFL draft. If you are tired of hearing about 40 times and cone drills and verts and broad jumps and whether Washington should trade up or won't trade up or has traded up or has decided not to trade up and who's saying what and who has this condition and who might go here and who doesn't want to go there, allow your mind for at least a few minutes to ponder the endless questions that arise when you consider apparently what was flirted with three years ago. The unthinkable Bill Belichick to Washington. All right, so something maybe even more improbable than Bill Belichick coming to Washington has been the Wizards playing well. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, thank you, Stephen A. Smith. But the truth is, the Wizards are soaring as we speak on this Thursday. And on Wednesday night, inarguably, the biggest game of the Wizards season so far, the Wizards delivered. Now, If you watched the game or if you were at the game, you know this game was not perfect. This was far from what you would call a five-star classic, but it does end up being another Wizards victory. 118-114 the final over the Golden State Warriors at Capital One Arena, where for the first time this season, we had fans. Yes, The announced attendance of 2,133 in effect. Thank you to Mayor Muriel Bowser, Emperor Bowser, finally allowing for fans at Capital One Arena. So make sure you write your thank you cards to the Emperor for allowing you to attend Capital One Arena last night, if you so chose. But the fans got treated to the latest Wizards win. The Wizards now have won a season-best six consecutive games. It is the Wizards' longest winning streak since a seven-game winning streak in January and February 2017. Yes, you have to go back four-plus years for the last time this team, our team. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, Stephen A. Won at least six consecutive games. And the Wizards now, my friends, are 10th in the Eastern Conference. Yes, the Wizards, as we speak, hold a spot in the oh-so-precious play-in tournament for the 2021 NBA playoffs. Some of the play-in tournament going to be taking place for seeds 7 through 10 in each conference. The Wizards are 10th in the Eastern Conference, half game ahead of the Toronto Raptors, who did beat the Brooklyn Nets 114-103. One game ahead of the Chicago Bulls, who lost at the lowly Cleveland Cavaliers 121-105. And while we're at it, Wizards are just two games behind the Indiana Pacers for ninth. The Pacers did beat the Oklahoma City Thunder 122-116. But playoff positioning has been attained by the Wizards, at least for now. The Wiz also, with this win over the Warriors on Wednesday night, improved to an improbable 16-10 and against Western Conference teams this season. I've been chronicling this on the podcast. If you are a regular listener, you are aware of this remarkable discrepancy. Despite the East being the lesser of the two conferences, the Wizards have struggled mightily against Eastern Conference teams this season, despite the West being the better of the two conferences. Once again, the Wizards have actually feasted on the Western Conference opposition so far this season. Wizards now are 16-10 and against Western Conference teams this year, as compared to 9-23 and against Eastern Conference teams this year. I don't get it. 
Nobody can explain it, but the Wizards are six games above 500 against the Mighty West, but 14 games below 500 against the oh-so-bad East. The Wizards are rolling eight wins in nine games. Wizards now just eight games below 500 overall. Now, it's not just all that. The Wizards won on Wednesday night despite being depleted. Wizards were without Rui Hachimura due to left knee soreness for a second consecutive game. The Wizards lost Denny Avdia during the game to a right ankle injury, and this looks like a season-ending injury. ESPN NBA insider Adrian Wojnarowski tweeting that Avdia suffered a season-ending hairline fracture, but also that no surgery will be needed. So, uh, you know, that's good news, I suppose, but the fact that he's out for the rest of the season is not good news. Look, it was an up-and-down rookie season for Denny Avdia, but he played a lot. He was one of the Wizards' better defenders and Avdia had started each of the last 15 games for the Wizards, including last night's. But you have no Hachimura. You have no Avdia. You remain without Thomas Bryant, who suffered a partially torn left ACL back on January 9th. You know, Scott Brooks is not playing Chandler Hutchison, who was a DNPCD on Wednesday night for a fifth consecutive game. So you're starting to run out of bodies here, but you do continue to pile up wins. This game was nuts on Wednesday night. The Wizards won the first quarter 38-20. The Wizards in the second quarter led by 19 points at 43-24, but then allowed the Warriors to go on a 21-run to tie the game. The Wizards lost the third quarter 35-26. The Wizards trailed in the fourth quarter by as many as 11 points at 104-93. The Wizards overcame that 11-point fourth quarter deficit by ending the game on a 25-10 run, but included in that mix was an awful bad pass turnover by Russell Westbrook with 13.7 seconds left and the Wizards nursing a 116-114 lead. The turnover, like right at midcourt, Andrew Wiggins somehow misses a layup. Davies Bertans ultimately gets the rebound off the ball, having hung on the rim for it felt like about an hour and a half. Bertans gets fouled, makes two free throws with 5.2 seconds left, and the Wizards come away with the win. But yeah, Russell Westbrook literally nearly gave the game away, but Andrew Wiggins blew the bunny, and the Wizards are able to come through with the win. The two teams combined for 40 turnovers in the game. The Wizards had 23. Neither team shot well. The two teams went a combined 25 for 73 on threes. But I tell you two things the Wizards did do well. Out-rebounded the Warriors by 17, 61-44. And the Wizards did a very good job of getting to the free throw line and made enough of those free throws. Wiz went 32 for 38 on free throws. The Warriors went 19 for 21 on free throws. So the Wizards were plus 13 at the free throw line in terms of points, plus 17 at the free throw line in terms of attempts. Now, what this game was built up to be, as you likely know, was a battle between the NBA's top two scorers, the top two men in the NBA in points per game, Steph Curry and Bradley Beal. The battle ended up being a total flop. Uh, Neither guy shot well. Bradley Beal went just two of six on threes, just six of 15 on twos. Now, Beal did go 11 of 11 on free throws and finished with solid numbers, 29 points, 10 rebounds, four assists versus just one turnover and two steals. The guy who was awful on Wednesday night was Steph. Steph went an atrocious two for 14 on threes and finished with just 18 points. And understand, Steph Curry came into the game on fire. Steph Curry came into the game averaging 40.8 points per game in this month of April. And the Wizards held him to 18 
on Wednesday night. The Wizards defense has been appreciably better during this stretch of eight wins and nine games, and nothing captures that better than what the Wiz did to Steph on Wednesday night. Now, look, some of this was just Steph missing shots, okay? I mean, the guy went two of 14 on threes, but the likes of Avdia when he was in the game, of Westbrook, of the Wizards as a team, you got to give them credit for the defensive job they did on the Warriors as a whole, but on Steph Curry in particular. He had been white hot. He got cooled off big time on Wednesday night against, yes, our team, the damn Washington Wizards. Thank you, Stephen A. I can't hear that enough on this Thursday. Steph finishes the game, like I said, two of 14 on threes, just 18 points, also with eight turnovers and with a game worst plus minus rating of minus 23. Now, I mentioned Westbrook. The turnover toward the end of the game was atrocious. He, in fact, finished with nine turnovers in the game. I told you this game was whacked out. Westbrook also didn't shoot well. Just one of four on threes, just four of 13 on twos. But Westbrook also did a number of very good things. First of all, another triple-double for Westbrook, extending his single season and career franchise records. That's now 27 triple-doubles this season. That's also now 173 career regular season triple-double. So he is eight shy of the NBA's all-time mark, Oscar Robertson's 181. Westbrook finishing with 14 points, 20 rebounds, and 10 assists to go with three steals. And Westbrook had some big buckets down the stretch. Huge driving layup on which he started from the left wing beyond the three-point line and drove past Andrew Wiggins for a 112-110 Wizards lead with 125 left in the fourth quarter. How about Haul Neto on Wednesday night? Old Haul getting the start. Again, Hachimura is out, so Neto has started these last two games. And Neto was great. Over 36 minutes, 17 seconds of playing time as a starter. He went three of six on threes, finished with 18 points, four assists versus two turnovers, three steals, three rebounds, and a game best plus minus rating of plus 17. Raise your hand if you expected that. Steph Curry was a minus 23. Haul Neto was a plus 17 on Wednesday night. Also, the Wizards bench delivered again. We've been singing the praises of Daniel Gafford on this podcast. Another very good game for him on Wednesday night. 19 points on 7 of 11 shooting, 10 rebounds, and 3 blocks in just 24 minutes, 7 seconds off the bench. You know, Gafford had been on a minutes restriction. That minutes restriction clearly lessened with Gafford playing for 24 plus minutes on Wednesday night, but another very impactful game. My goodness, has he been good so far. It's amazing. The Capitals have Anthony Mantha and what he's done since the Caps acquired him via trade. The Wiz have Daniel Gafford and what he's done since the Wiz acquired him via trade. And then there was Davies Bertans. And as I've said many times, it has not been a good season for old Davies, okay? He gets the five-year, $80 million contract this past offseason to resign with the Wiz. He has been a big disappointment so far this season. He's also dealt with a good bit in the way of injury, but Bertans delivered on Wednesday night. Four of 10 on threes. That's not necessarily like spectacular, but that is good. Uh, 19 points, six rebounds in 30 minutes, one second off the bench. And what really sticks out with Bertans is how much of a force he was in the fourth quarter. The Wizards won the fourth quarter 32-21. Remember, overcame an 11-point fourth quarter deficit. Bertans was such a big part of that. He had 12 points in that fourth quarter and playing for all 12 minutes in that fourth quarter. What a job by the Wiz. I've said this. I do want the Wizards to play well. Normally, I am open, very open to the tank. But the Wizards have young players. The Wizards have a guy in Bradley Beal who they're trying to build around. The Wizards have a guy who can still be very impactful in Russell Westbrook. I think there is value in the Wizards doing well here, getting into the postseason, 
And let's see what happens. I mean, do I expect the Wizards to do real damage in the playoffs, even if they make it out of the playing tournament? No. But you know what? Who knows? And it's nice to have wins and good things and positive vibes to discuss with our basketball team for once. There's been so much negativity with the Wizards for years now. It's it's a good feeling to be able to discuss good things. They're doing a really good job. I tell you, I, I am a little conflicted because more and more you do wonder, like, is this going to save Scott Brooks's job as a head coach? And I very much feel like the Wizards need to get themselves a head coach who demands good defense, who extracts good defense from his team. Brooks, to me, is not that guy. But like I said, the Wizards' defense has been better lately. And obviously, so too have the results. Wiz are 10th in the East. Wiz have won six consecutive games. Next up for the Wiz, at the Oklahoma City Thunder, Friday night at 8. So another game against the Western Conference team, then home to the Cleveland Cavaliers Sunday night at 7. Cavs are an Eastern Conference team. They're bad, but it's a team from the East, so who knows what happens. But then after that, two home games against Western Conference teams, San Antonio Spurs, Monday night at 7. LeBron, old Bron Bron, and the Los Angeles Lakers, next Wednesday night at 7.30. Yes, sir. Big win for the Wizards on Wednesday night and a big win for the Nationals on Wednesday during the day. The Nats get a shutout victory over the St. Louis Cardinals at Nationals Park. one nothing the final to take two of three in the series. It was a cold day. It was a windy day. The shadows were out at Nats Park, but Max Scherzer and three relievers combine on a six hitter. And the Nats now are seven and nine on the season, including six and four since the 1-5 and five start, and so to that, Davey Martinez, we say... I'm proud of the boys. Yes, Davey, absolutely. You should be proud of the boys. You know, especially given the circumstances under which the Nats have had their 2021 season so far. The COVID-19 absences to begin the season. Both Juan Soto and Steven Strasburg on the 10-day injured list. The brutal schedule so far. Five blow-up starts in 16 games. The heavy usage, consequently of the bullpen. Given all those factors, heck yeah, you can live with the Nats being seven and nine. And that doesn't mean that seven and nine is what you wanted. It certainly doesn't mean that the Nats don't have any major concerns. They do have multiple major concerns. I've talked about many of those concerns on this podcast. I told you going into this Nats season, I'm worried about the Nats. I don't think the Nats are going to end up having ultimately a great 2021, but that doesn't mean that the Nats can't have a great 2021. And all you're trying to do at this point is just keep your head above water. You know, keep your head above water to where once you get back the likes of Soto and Strasburg, once you get through the gauntlet that was this season beginning with four of your first five series against the Atlanta Braves, Los Angeles Dodgers, or St. Louis Cardinals, you can maybe start to make hay at that point. And maybe, just maybe, we're getting to a point here where the Nats can start making their hay. But that was a good win on Wednesday for the Nats. And this is a good series victory for the Nationals over a good Cardinals team. And it all starts, Wednesday's win does, with the great Max Scherzer. The ace was ace-like yet again. A third consecutive very good start for Mad Max in this one nothing win over the Cardinals on Wednesday. Six scoreless innings on nine strikeouts versus four hits, a double and three singles, a walk, and a hit by pitch. This outing on Wednesday leaves Max Scherzer with the following numbers over his first four starts of this season. You ready for these numbers? An ERA of 180, a whip, that's walks plus hits divided by innings pitched, of 0.72, and 33 strikeouts versus four walks. You know, Max in the Nationals' season opening game, 
that 6-5 win over the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park on April 6th. Had some issues. We talked about this. Max did give up four runs in six innings in that game on four solo homers, but he gave up just five hits for the game. He issued no walks. He had nine strikeouts. If there's such a thing as pitching well, but still giving up four homers, Max Scherzer did that in the Nats' first game of this season. Since then, Max unequivocally has been lights out. Three-nothing loss at the Los Angeles Dodgers on April 11th. One run in six innings, five strikeouts. The one-nothing walk-off win over the Arizona Diamondbacks on Nationals Park last Friday night, April 16th. Max, seven scoreless innings, 10 strikeouts. And now what Max did on Wednesday in the one-nothing blanking of St. Louis. Six scoreless innings, nine strikeouts. Now, what's funny about the outing is that Max actually struggled in the top of the first, though it ended up being a scoreless top of the first. But Max issued a leadoff hit by pitch of Tommy Edmond, then gave up a one-out single to Nolan Arenado, then gave up a one-out full count walk to Paul DeYoung, despite him having been down to the count at 1.12 to load the bases. But what did Max do? He got out of the jam and out of it via the strikeout, recorded back-to-back strikeouts of Dylan Carlson and Matt Carpenter for the second and third outs. Max, in a scoreless top of the second, did give up a leadoff full count single to Justin Williams and a two-out double to the Cardinals starting pitcher Carlos Martinez, but got out of that inning unscathed. Max tossed a perfect top of the third, despite facing the Cardinals numbers two through four batters, including striking out Paul Goldschmidt and Paul DeYoung. Max, in a perfect top of the fourth, struck out Justin Williams on four pitches for the third out. And Max, in a scoreless top of the six, did what he has done so many times in his career, and that is end with emphasis, end with an exclamation mark. Go out on a high note, Max striking out Nolan Arenado for the second out, striking out Dylan Carlson for the third out. This was vintage Max Scherzer. This was ace Max Scherzer. This was Cy Young level. Max Scherzer. He's been very good so far this season. That was one of the questions going into the season. Are we done with Cy Young level Max or can he get back to that level? A level that truthfully he had not been out since the middle of the 2019 season. And at least so far, you have to say Max Scherzer is right there. ERA of 180, whip of 072, 33 strikeouts versus four walks. That, my friends, is ace-like. Outstanding job by Max Scherzer on Wednesday. Now, the bullpen on Wednesday. The A bullpen was on display. David Martinez's varsity bullpen was on display, i.e. Tanner Rainey to Daniel Hudson to Brad Hand. It wasn't always smooth, but the three guys ultimately get the job done combined for three scoreless innings. Tanner Rainey was very good, and this was probably the most significant thing from the bullpen output on Wednesday. Tanner Rainey had not been good so far this season. Tanner Rainey in the previous night's game, that 3-2 win over the Cardinals, at Nationals Park on Tuesday night, Rainey gave up two runs in the top of the seventh, but Rainey on Wednesday was good, and he was back to recording a bunch of strikeouts. Tanner Rainey was an excellent strikeout pitcher last season. He's been kind of mixed in that regard so far this year, but on Wednesday, Rainey, a scoreless top of the seventh, in which he does give up a two-out first pitch double to Andrew Kisner, but some of that had to do with some questionable defense by Victor Robles. But for the three outs in that inning, Rainey, three strikeouts, struck out Matt Carpenter, struck out Justin Williams, and struck out a pinch-hitting Austin Dean. So a very good job by Rainey. Then came Daniel Hudson in the top of the eighth. And it did end up being a scoreless top of the eighth, but Daniel Hudson was essentially operating on fumes in this inning. Through a bunch of pitches off having been utilized the previous night, you really did wonder watching this inning if Davey was going to go to Brad Hand the closer early for maybe a three-plus out save. Davey did not do that. Hudson did walk the tightrope 
but he ended up making out of the inning without giving up a run. He did end up loading the bases, gave up a two-out walk of Nolan Arenado, a two-out full count single to Paul DeYoung, despite him having been down to the count at one point, one-two, and a two-out full count walk of Dylan Carlson. So with two outs, Hudson loads the bases, but he does get out of the jam, and then Brad Hand comes on board and tosses a scoreless ninth. All things considered, the bullpen, with how much it has been leaned on so far this season, is doing a good job. You really don't want to see the bullpen continue to be used as often as it's being used. I mean, Wednesday's not really an example of this. Max Scherzer gave you six innings, but I mentioned this. Nats over the first 16 games with, by my count, five blow-up starts. Two by Patrick Corbin, one by Steven Strasburg, one by Joe Ross, one by Eric Fetty. And so consequently, the bullpen has been utilized a ton. And so when you consider that, I don't think the bullpen has been that bad. And seeing this formula be established early in the season of this is the A bullpen, this is the varsity bullpen, this is the setup, Rainey to Hudson to Hand, I think that trifecta's got real potential. I think we've seen that over these last two games, albeit not always in the smoothest of fashions. Davies lineup on Wednesday. Look, the Nats offense wasn't very good on Wednesday. And it was a cold day at Nationals Park. It was a windy day at Nationals Park. Nats are minus Juan Soto, him being on the 10-day injured list. So right now, I don't know that you spend a ton of time getting all worked up about the Nats only scoring just the one run. At some point, though, you do want to see the offense start to bust out. And you definitely want to see the offense start to hit for more power. You're not seeing that right now. Nats are not getting much in the way of the extra base hit. Nats aren't hitting homers. You know, they're not racking up doubles or anything like that. The Nats are having to nickel and dime opposing pitching staffs. The Nats are having to really manufacture runs. And, you know, that's okay so long as you can do it. But in this day and age in baseball, you want to be able to put forth the extra base hit. And the Nats have not done that with any kind of frequency so far this year. I did get a kick once again on Wednesday of Davey Martinez, not just having Victor Robles batting in the eighth spot, because we've become accustomed to that by now. But Victor Robles, again, batting behind the backup catcher, Alex Avila. It's one thing for Robles to bat behind Jan Gomes. He's actually a pretty good hitting catcher. But for Robles to be behind Alex Avila, an aging, you know, mid-30s backup catcher who was not good offensively at all last year, I just still can't get over that. What's so funny about that, though, is that Alex Avila ended up being like Johnny Bench on Wednesday. He was by far the Nats' best hitter on Wednesday. Two for three with two doubles and an RBI. In a one nothing game, that's Johnny Bench. Uh, Avila had a two-out first pitch, RBI double in the bottom of the second, and a leadoff double in the bottom of the fifth, despite having been down in the count at one point, one-two. So good job by Avila at the plate. I mean, there's, there's no other way to put it. And Avila made the defensive play of the game a beautiful throw to the second baseman, Josh Harrison, to get Justin Williams on an attempted steal on a strike him out, throw him out, double play for the first two outs in the top of the second inning. That was a laser of a throw by Avila. That was a perfect throw by Avila. I'm not sure you could draw a better throw from a catcher to second base to get a runner trying to steal. And this is one thing about Avila that's undeniable. Like him offensively, I think there are major questions, although again, he had a good game on Wednesday. But Alex Avila over the previous two seasons, 2019 and 2020, one of the best guys when it comes to throwing out runners trying to steal. Avila, 14 for 32, nearly 50% on runners trying to steal over the last two seasons coming into this season. So he's been very good in that regard. He also brings value to the Nats from a standpoint of having caught Max Scherzer, Patrick Corbin, John Lester, and Avila stints on previous teams. So there are defensive reasons to have Avila on your team. I don't have a problem with Avila being on the team. I just have not liked Avila batting ahead of Victor Robles multiple times here recently. But that's the way it is right now with Victor. I mean, he is just buried 
near the bottom of the lineup. I mean, look, he himself does have to do a better job. Uh, Robles on Wednesday, 0 for 2 with a walk. He did have a two-out, full-count, seven-pitch walk in the bottom of the second. He is getting on base. Robles has actually drawn some walks, and like he always does, he's gotten hit by some pitches. He has a 350 on base percentage over 16 games so far this season, but the batting average is just 204. The slugging percentage is just 245. I still wish he would have gotten more than just eight games as the Nats' number one batter off us having been told that he was going to be the Nats' number one batter coming into the season. But there is an element here of Victor himself has got to do better. And, you know, he's getting on base, like I said, but he's got to hit for power. He's got to get more hits. He just hasn't had many hits so far on the season. But beyond Avila and Robles, lineup was very similar to what we saw in the Tuesday night win for the Nationals in that game one without Juan Soto due to him being on the 10-day IL. Andrew Stevenson was again the Nats' starting right fielder and number one batter. He went 0 for 4 with a strikeout, but I do want to give him a lot of credit for this because this is an example of a guy not getting credit for a hit due to an error, but you can very much argue that the guy caused the error. So Stevenson did reach base to begin the bottom of the third via a fielding error by the Cardinals shortstop, Paul DeYoung. And the error was because of Stevenson's speed. Stevenson did a good job, first of all, of putting the ball in play in the plate appearance. Uh, it was a full count pitch on which Stevenson put the ball in play. And Stevenson put the ball in play despite having been down in the count at 1.12. But what happened on the air was the ball went under the glove of DeYoung as he was charging in and took his eyes off the ball. And presumably the reason DeYoung took his eyes off the ball was to monitor Stevenson who can run. Now, you know, Andrew Stevenson is not lightning fast, but Andrew Stevenson's speed is a factor. And so Paul DeYoung is charging in on a relatively slow grounder, removes his eyes from the baseball to see where Stevenson is at. And sure enough, what happens, the ball ends up going under DeYoung's glove. Stevenson gets to first base. That's not a hit for Stevenson. That goes down as an error on DeYoung. But you tell me, especially if you watch the game, that is Andrew Stevenson making that error happen. So I want to give you Andrew Stevenson credit for that. That's part of the value that Andrew Stevenson does bring to the Nats lineup. Now, he only goes one for seven with a single and two walks in the series, but moments like that make you appreciate what Andrew Stevenson can provide. Josh Harrison was, again, the Nats' number two batter as a starting second baseman. Uh, Harrison had a walk in the game, a two-out, four-pitch walk in the bottom of the eighth, but otherwise 0 for 3 with a walk was Harrison in the game. Trey Turner remained in that number three spot as a starting shortstop. Turner, 1 for 4, had a one-out single and a stolen base in the bottom of the sixth inning. Turner's been very good so far this season. Where you need more production from is the middle of the order. You know, Josh Bell, Kyle Schwarber, Starling Castro. Josh Bell was the starting first baseman in all three games in this series. Ryan Zimmerman did not get a single start in this series against the Cardinals. Bell was the cleanup batter on Wednesday again, and Bell goes one for three, does have a full count leadoff single, and then adds one run second despite having been down to the count at one point, one, two, to cap an eight-pitch plate appearance. So that was a good job of hitting by Bell in that instance, but he's got to get going here. Nine games, 36 plate appearances, batting average of just 161, on base percentage of just 250, and a slugging percentage of just 323. Again, where is the power? We ain't seeing much power. Uh, Kyle Schwarber, 0 for 3 with two strikeouts. This was a bad series for Schwarber. He starts all three games. He goes 0 for 10 with a walk and six strikeouts. He's batting 200 with a 238 on base and a 350 slugging. And starting Castro, number six batter, starting third baseman, 0 for 3, on Wednesday. He does have a good batting average so far on the season at 267, but the on-base is just 270. The slugging is just 383. Castro did have a double in this series. He, on Tuesday night, had a one-out double in the bottom of the second inning, but that was his only hit of the series. One for 10 with that double, two RBI 
and three strikeouts. Nats are off on Thursday, then begin a five-game road trip on Friday night with game one of a three-game series at the New York Mets. After that series, the Nats are off on Monday and then have a two-game series against the Toronto Blue Jays in Dunedin, Florida, because the Blue Jays, remember, are not playing their home games, at least so far this season, in Toronto because of the COVID-19 pandemic. So some much-needed off days are coming up for the Nats. They deserve them, and all things considered, They've done a nice job here. Like I said, there are bigger picture concerns with the Nats, to be sure. Lack of pitching depth, bad defense, inconsistency in the lineup, age. But for now, 7-9, and despite all of the things working against the Nats so far this season, you take that. And Davey, yes, you may be proud of your boys. I'm proud of the boys. All right, let's talk Capitals. Just one point separates the top three teams in the East Division. Caps and New York Islanders are tied atop the division at 62 points. The Pittsburgh Penguins are in third place at 61 points. And a huge stretch of games for the Caps begins on Thursday night. Three consecutive games against the Islanders, the first two of which are at New York, the third of which is at Capital One Arena, followed by two consecutive home games against the Penguins. Very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast right now, the longtime television voice of the Caps, Joe Beninati of NBC Sports Washington. Joe B., it's great to talk to you. Safe to say that these next five games for the Caps will determine whether they win the East Division or not necessarily. I don't know if it's going to happen and be determined that quickly, but straight up against the Islanders, you would imagine these two teams may have their fortunes play out in the next couple of weeks. I just look at the schedule, Al, of the teams remaining or that are in the top four right now in the Mass Mutual East, and you just look at what Boston has left and what Pittsburgh has left, and I would say that those two teams are in the driver's seat. The Islanders and Caps have the far more difficult schedules. Boston even has a couple of games in hand. So I think it's advantage Bruins right now. But yes, the the importance of the next couple of weeks can't be understated for the Caps, especially when it's straight up against Barry Trotz and the Islanders. To what extent does it matter whether the Caps win the East? I mean, obviously they'd rather win it than not win it, but we all know how little seeding can mean in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Do you think it's important that the Caps win the East or not really? I don't think it's all that important, especially if you look at the road records. And I know this is an unusual year, Al. This is strange because, you know, in drips and drabs, we're starting to see uh, buildings open their turnstiles to patrons, to fans. So you're starting to see some arenas have a couple thousand people in them. Does that create the home ice advantage of, you know, the normal 19 or 20,000? I don't know. I don't think so. But with respect to how Washington has fared on the road this year, the Caps have more wins on the road than uh, than they do at home. Uh, I want to say that the Caps and Vegas have the second most road wins of any team in the league. The, the team that has won the most is Winnipeg. So do you need to be a top seed in the East if you're Washington? Probably not. They've, they've fared extremely well on the road this season. One area of concern, their power play has been magnificent lately overall anywhere but for the most part their power play numbers are built at home that power play becomes that much more critical in the playoffs they haven't been super on the road maybe that changes like I said they've been warming up lately on the road but no I don't I don't think there's a a prerequisite or a mandate that you're going to feel like you have to get home ice I don't think that's that's true especially in this peculiar year 
it's going to be so much fun these next three games against the Islanders. Of course, the Barry Trotz factor, but this is going to be like, in essence, a mini playoff series. We, of course, remember what happened last postseason between the two teams. There's also what has happened this season. Caps won their first three games against the Isles, but have since lost the last two, including that 8-4 loss at the Islanders back on April 1st. Are the Islanders a bad matchup for the Caps, or do you not see it that way? Not necessarily. I think the Rangers might be a worse matchup. I don't think New York Rangers are going to be in the picture, but um, just judging by what I've seen with my own eyes, I tend to think that the Rangers have an advantage more so over uh, Washington just by pure speed. Um, the Islanders are a tremendously tough team to play against, Al. They're they're miserable to play against. Let's just call a spade a spade. Um, Coach Trotz has a system in place. And the players on Long Island have bought into it that they're going to press you. They're going to make life miserable between the blue lines. You're not going to have open skating lanes and a chance to free wheel. And we know the Caps have a love uh, have a, a, a love for that type of hockey. They have so many fancy Dans who like to play in that sense. Uh, a little bit of a track meet ty- type of game. Create those highlight reel type goals. More often than not... That's not available against a New York Islander team that suffocates you. And defensively, I want to say the Islanders are having, through whatever it was, 45 games, maybe the best defensive performance they've had in their franchise's history. And that includes the the glory days of the 80s in terms of goals against average. They don't give you anything, Al. Um, Varlamov has four shutouts. Sorokin, who hasn't even played against the Caps, has three shutouts. This team is tough to score against. And then you have Washington, the team with the most goals in the East. So it's a nice yin and yang over these next three games to see strength against strength, who prevails. Um, you know, the, the, the last two games on Long Island specifically, the crazy run-and-gun 8-4 game and then the super tight-to-the-best-one-nothing game. So these two teams can play it any way you like. Yeah. They're usually a really good matchup for each other. It's been so interesting, too, with the Caps, of course, from a goaltending standpoint this season. And since Ilya Samsonov returned from COVID-19, he and Vitek Vanacek truly have rotated. Samsonov has been the better of the two lately. Do you think that Peter Laviolette wants to settle on one goaltender as we approach the Stanley Cup playoffs? Or do you think that we're going to continue to see both guys? Wouldn't be surprised if we see them both. And because neither of them has really felt the Stanley Cup playoff crush... I think that's okay. I think they're pushing each other. I think both of those guys want the job. They want to turn to the head coach and say, pick me. You know, it's day, let's say it's day one of the Stanley Cup playoffs. Who are you going to pick, Peter? Pick me. Let me show you. And uh, there's part of me that thinks both of these guys can handle it. There's part of me that sees some flashes in their game, some signs of weakness as the stretch run comes. Let's, let's evaluate, reevaluate over these last 10 games where the Capitals are playing a very difficult schedule. It would not surprise me to see uh, Peter Laviolette and goalie coach Scott Murray shuffle them up, rotate them through. I don't know that they're trying to get one guy the quote, hot hand, so that they can go in with a clear and established number one. I, I don't think that's going to be the case. I don't know what the Stanley Cup playoff arrangement's going to look like in the first round. Al, I don't know if you know, you're going to have the normal day on, day off. The league is now, you're pushing the regular season well into May now. Yeah. You know, you, you're, you're, I don't want there, and I know the league doesn't want there to be any troubles next fall with regard to, you know, a September preseason and an October start and hopefully the return of 82 games. 
are they going to accelerate the playoffs? In other words, are there going to be some back-to-back? Are you going to play Monday, Tuesday? Are you going to play four games in five days or six days? And if so, you're going to need both goalies. And in that case, I think Washington is in good shape. So are the Islanders, by the way. Yeah, uh, very good point there. Is one guy better to you than the other in terms of Samsonov versus Vanacek? Ceiling for the future, Samsonov. Large chunk of this season, Vanacek. You know, Vitek has been extraordinary to me because normally in this situation, if you rewind the tape and go back to the top of the season, you are factoring having Ilya Samsonov as the one and Henrik Lundqvist presumably pushing him for every second possible in the goal. And Sam, and Lundqvist is the type of competitor who would have loved to have stripped away that number one from Samsonov. Didn't turn out that way. Henrik has the health issue. God bless him. He's back on the ice and performing well after the open heart surgery. But the doctors are saying, no, Henrik, not this year. Please give it some more time. And all that matters for us is that, that Henrik is, is well. And if he plays ever, ever plays again, wherever he does play, we wish him well. But there's Vitek Vanacek thrust into the spotlight with the early season issues for Samsonov with regard to COVID and the COVID protocol absences that he had to miss, the time he had to miss, Vanacek gets thrust into the spotlight and performs really, really well. So for the larger portion of the season, Vanacek's been, you know, a rookie of the year type candidate. He'll get votes. He's not going to be the rookie of the year, but he will get votes. He's performed brilliantly for what you would have expected. Samsonov, long-term future, this is, you know, for a long time, Al, we had talked about him as the, the crown jewel of their prospect pool. He's here now. He shows you signs of being, yeah, a lead pipe number one guy. But he also shows signs of some vulnerability. That needs to even out. There has to be more consistency there. I need him to make more. I think the Caps would say they tell you they need him to make more of the saves he's supposed to make. And lately, in the last... I'd say three weeks or so, he's not giving up those leaky, faulty-looking goals. And that's that's key. Talking Capitals with the longtime television voice of the Caps, Joe Beninati of NBC Sports Washington. So Alex Ovechkin, it was an uneven start to his season, but here we are deep into the regular season. He's number one on the Caps with 24 goals. He's second on the Caps with 42 points. Even in those games in which he doesn't score, he's almost always leading the Caps in shots on goal and or total shots. What's your assessment of Ovi's season? What is, of course, technically a contract season, although I know the expectation is that he will be re-signed. I'm really happy that I still see Alex with strong skating legs this late into the regular season. And obviously that's going to be super important as we get to uh, further into May and the beginning of the Stanley Cup playoffs. I, I see Ovechkin having a good, solid skating burst. And that's important. If, if he were, if he were ailing, if he were not skating with that usual oomph at this time of the year, then you'd be worried as to how much he could deliver, uh, come playoff time. I, I still see him factoring in and throwing hits. And like you're saying, even on nights when he's not producing on the score sheet, he is visible. And that's the key with Alex. The best thing about him is when he is healthy, you know, you're going to get a thousand percent effort. And if that's the case and they can go, a long ways thanks to the the strength of his scoring ability. And regardless of who he's playing with, I mean, Peter Laviolette always knows he can go back to that super comfortable shoe, you know, putting Backstrom and Ovechkin together. For right now, the line of uh, Ovechkin, Kuznetsov, and Wilson is what they favor. 
Backstrom seems to be getting along very well with Anthony Manta and TJ Oshie. Let's see how long that runs. But there's flexibility there, and Alex's play determines whether or not um, Peter chooses one center or another with regard to how he shapes up on a line. And the most important thing for Ovechkin and for the Caps moving forward is health. And any any team will tell you that. I can't believe what Pittsburgh's been doing lately for a month without Malkin. That tells you how good Crosby's been and everybody else, Gensel and Rust in their lineup. But if Pittsburgh were to get Malkin back, and from what I see, he's out for at least another week, that only makes them that much stronger. Health is the key. And uh, with all these games on top of each other, I, I'm amazed, Al, at what these athletes do. I think they're the best athletes in the world considering their sport. But when you put and look really at um, the way they've laid out this schedule this season in and around all the COVID issues that they're dealing with, they're asking a tremendous amount from these players. The the amount of games in April alone is, is staggering. I want to say the Caps are playing 16 times in 28 days. Wow. That's amazing to me. And and you're nowhere, you're, you're, you're still 10 games away from the postseason. Yeah, and the Caps, I mean, knock on wood, I know they dealt with injury and absence issues early in the season, but lately they've been very healthy and they've had all their horses and it's been great to see that. You mentioned the new guy, Anthony Mantha, first player in Caps history to score a goal in each of his first four games with the team. And it's not just that, because, you know, sometimes goals can be kind of fluky. I know one of those goals was an empty net goal, but Mantha has routinely been among the top Caps in five-on-five shot attempt percentage over these four games. You know, Mantha, it's a tricky guy to figure out in some respects, right? He had a reputation in Detroit for not always being into it. He's a guy who the Red Wings extended last November and then yet traded the following April. You certainly don't see that often. What do you think the Caps have in Anthony Mantha? Well, with this group, within this group, you know, I've heard some detractors say, you know, Anthony needs a push. Anthony needs motivation. Well, when he's surrounded by this group of offensive talents, there's there's the oomph. You know, there's the motivation. Yeah. Uh, a chance to go from a Detroit team that's been well down in the standings for far too long. The league's better when Detroit's playing well. But, you know, the chance to get away from Detroit and come to a team that's right there in consideration for an East Division title and, and hopefully a whole lot more, uh, that provides motivation. And this player, when he walks off the team bus, when he steps off the plane, uh, you look at him and you go, whoa. And he just fits the, he fits the mold of this Washington team. Really big, uh, very highly skilled. I mean, he's, he's going at least 6'5 and 230. Uh, from what I'm told, he has a nasty streak. Uh, I don't think you want him to drop the gloves. You want, you want to save those uh, precious hands, but he has that ability to, to play with a snarl if need be. Uh, he had been a protector from time to time in Detroit. I think, GM Steve Eiserman there had told him, you know, hey, let's knock it off. We need you in the lineup. I don't need you fighting anybody. Um, when he comes to a Washington lineup and he has a chance to play with a with a skilled playmaker with the vision of Nicholas Backstrom, that's got to make Anthony light up. Because if he goes to the right spots and he goes there with gusto, Nicholas is going to get him the puck in prime scoring positions, and he's going to bury those. He's got a tremendous shot. You know, the, the Caps have, um, when it's on, a, almost superhuman type power play when it clicks and it's been clicking almost 40 some odd percent in the last five games you could add mantha to that mantha could be the look in the mirror version of ovechkin he'd be on the other side as a left-handed one-timer from what i'm told his one-time shot is 
you know, <laughs> scary in the in the mold of Ovechkin's. Wow. And Ovechkin's possibly is the greatest of all time in that regard. You could have a two pronged look if you put Manta on the other side, just looked in the mirror. Uh, he's got that those kind of gifts out. He is he's not going to blow you away with skating straight line speed. Okay, no, he's not Jacob Vrana in that regard. But he has the ability to create separation with his size and his strength. His shooting skill, from what I am told, and I'm in the Vrana fan club, Jacob can really shoot a puck, but this guy is supposedly even another level. And that's got to be, again, really, really pleasing to a playmaker to set up guys like Kuznetsov and Backstrom. When they get a chance to get a puck to a shooter like Ovechkin, to a shooter like Manta, they love it. And the red light usually comes on. No doubt. With the Caps' defense core, a lot of point production, and not just from John Carlson this season. That's been a lot of fun to watch. A whole lot of Zdeno Chara. I mean, man, have they gotten a lot of mileage out of him this season. And, you know, you at times have had the thing of the play in front of the goaltending not being what you want. Overall, Joe, how do you feel about the Caps' defense core as we approach the postseason? I'm in a good place with it, Al. I'm not in a great spot with it, and maybe it's just a bad taste from the last game with Boston, which I, I think more than anything, again, I was talking about the schedule. The Bruins were off. The Caps played the day before. I think it's almost one of those schedule-type losses. But, you know, you see John Carlson minus five. You see Alex Ovechkin minus four in yeah. that game. And you go, ooh, wait a second. Um, I think the Caps defensively are, are just fine. I do. And I think they have some depth there. I'm a little bit concerned that Justin Schultz hasn't been on the ice the last couple of days. He took a hit from Taylor Hall early in that Boston game and came out of the lineup. Justin's really important from the, the transporting of the puck sense. Al, he's such a good player, either with a long pass out of his own zone or skating it himself. He he helps the Caps spend less time in their own end. If they miss him for any length of time, that's an important loss. But all in all, you know, like Dmitry Orlov to me in the last month has come along a great way. John Carlson's offensive numbers, you can't quibble with those. I mean, there's a chance there that he might lead the NHL defensive scoring two years in a row. And I don't think anybody's done that since Eric Carlson maybe seven or eight years ago. Trevor Van Reems likes the guy who's thrust in the spotlight if Schultz can't make it uh, to the ice for the Islanders little mini-series that's coming up. Um, Paul Ledoux is a name you might hear down the road if need be. But with Zdeno Chara returning to the practice ice, I think that's important. You mentioned it. Uh, you touched on him there for a moment. I can't say enough about what he means to the team off of the ice, Al. He is, you know, the guys just hold him in such high regard, and he plays. He still has that warrior mentality about himself and how he works on the ice at the age of 44. It's it's remarkable. He's not the same Z he was 10 years ago, but he's still vitally important to get out there, you know, in that 16, 17, 18 minute mark. I don't need to play him 25 anymore. I've got other guys who can do that. But Chara has been giving the team really good defensive minutes with Nick Jensen. And I think Nick's been as pleasant a surprise as you could say all season. He's been really, really good. There was a time there there was some worry about number three. Nick's been solid, solid as a rock. He and Chara have worked extremely well together, and it's no surprise that uh, Kevin McCarthy, the assistant coach who looks after D and Peter Laviolette, have kept those two together. When they're available, they've been together pretty much week-to-week, game-to-game for the entire season. He's explored some other pairings. You know, he's mixed Dylan with Carlson. He's mixed Orloff with Schultz, but he's kept Chara and Jensen together for good reason.
No doubt. Well, this should be a ton of fun. Capitals, Islanders, next three games for the Caps, followed by Caps-Pens the following two games. Joe Beninati, always doing a great job calling Caps games with Craig Lachlan on NBC Sports Washington. All the best, Joe. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Al. Anytime you like. For the Orioles on Wednesday, we did have a loss. It was a shutout loss. Nationals won via the shutout. Orioles were the victims of a shutout. A 3 nothing loss at the Miami Marlins on Wednesday afternoon for a split in that two-game series. O's now 8-10 and on the year. Bruce Zimmerman was the Orioles starting pitcher on Wednesday afternoon. Got off to a really good start. Four scoreless innings, but then gave up three runs in the bottom of the fifth, during which one of the runs charged to him did come on a two-out RBI single by Adam Duvall of the Orioles reliever Cole Solcer. So Zimmerman for the game, three runs, four and two-thirds innings, does give up six hits, a double and five singles, issues two walks versus four strikeouts. You know, game in and game out, Orioles starters are not lasting more than five innings. And part of that is by design, like this is kind of how the Orioles are doing things in this all-in on analytics approach. But a lot of this too is just about what the Orioles have in their rotation. So with the exception of just a few outings so far this year, you know, John Means had a gem recently. It's been like five innings. There's a phrase in baseball for this, five and dive. And that's what it's been for the Orioles so far. Five and then dive. Just get out of the way, okay? Because you ain't lasting much longer than that. And Zimmerman on Wednesday afternoon, even though he goes four scoreless, ends up not lasting more than four and two thirds. 81 pitches. That's how many pitches Zimmerman ended up throwing in the game. Now, the Orioles' bullpen does continue to be good overall. Some of this is on technicality because, you know, something like what happened with Cole Solcer on Wednesday. He comes into the game, gives up a two-out ribby single to Adam Duvall, but the run gets charged to Bruce Zimmerman. But ultimately, three Orioles relievers officially on Wednesday afternoon combined for three and a third scoreless innings. Orioles relievers, as we speak, over the course of this 8-10 and start, a collective ERA of 338. That's pretty good. Now, I'm not sure it's going to last very long. Okay, again, with the five and dive approach to the rotation right now, but that's been a sneaky thing going on so far with the Orioles this season. Their bullpen actually has been quite good. I made mention on Wednesday's podcast of the great job that Cesar Valdez did in that 7-5 Orioles win at the Marlins on Tuesday night. Valdez won into third perfect innings with three strikeouts. 338 bullpen ERA for the O's so far this season. That's been nice. And the strikeout rate is pretty good, too. More than a strikeout per inning, 9.32 strikeouts per nine innings. Uh, Orioles offense obviously was dormant on Wednesday afternoon with a 3 nothing shutout loss. So O's had just four hits, one walk. Uh, that's been a real problem uh, with the Orioles. Their offense has not been good. You know, there are some bright spots here and there. But overall, the Orioles over the 8-10 and 10 start are batting 218, team on base percentage of just 276, team slugging percentage of just 363. And the Orioles now have, in fact, lost one of their better batters in Anthony Santander. I wondered about this on Wednesday's podcast. And sure enough, the O's on Wednesday did put Santander on the 10-day injured list with a sprained left ankle. The O's in that win at the Marlins on Tuesday night got back Austin Hayes from the 10-day IL. He'd been on that due to a right hamstring strain. But in that very game, in fact, in the first inning, the O's lose Santander to the left ankle sprain, and he actually ends up being replaced in the game by Austin Hayes. O's are off on Thursday, begin a seven-game homestand on Friday night with game one of a three-game series against the Oakland A's. And how about the A's so far this season? One of these stories of Major League Baseball. Oakland began the season 1-7, and seven, now has won 11 consecutive games, the latest of which was a 13-12, 10-inning win over the Minnesota Twins on Wednesday. The A's scored a run in the bottom of the ninth, then gave up two runs in the top of the 10th, 
and then scored three runs in the bottom of the 10th on two errors by the Twins. After the three games against Oakland, the Orioles have a four-game series against the New York Yankees at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. I mentioned the Yankees struggling the other day. The Yankees lost again on Wednesday, a 4-1 loss at home to the Atlanta Braves. So the Yankees now on this season, 6-11. Okay, we wound up 5-11. Not very good. No, 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 no. 6-11. Not 5-11. We're not going to chip them, ball coach, okay? Yankees are 6-11 on the season so far. Wouldn't it be nice for the Orioles to add to the pain of the pinstripes? in that upcoming four-game series. But first, you got the weekend set against an ace team that, like I said, is flying right now. All right, that will do it for you and me. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. On Friday's installment of the podcast, lots more on the Washington football team and the upcoming NFL draft. Full analysis of the Capitals' big game at the New York Islanders on Thursday night. And who knows what else? No games for the Wizards, Nationals, or Orioles on Thursday, but you never know what else may pop up. Have a great rest of your Thursday. I'll talk to you on Friday. We're on to Cincinnati. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.